While you guys are turning to Psalm 37, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. And Father, we've spent some time in this psalm. And Lord, I think for some of us, this psalm may, may have become a, a new favorite because it speaks so much into the circumstances of life that we may frequently find ourselves in. Those times of life where it seems unfair because we have set aside to follow you, Father, and, and we feel like the, those who choose not to follow you, they seem to be the ones succeeding. They seem to be the ones doing well. And why do we have to go through hard things? How do we continue to traverse in righteousness as we see the wicked triumphing? What does that all mean? Lord, I pray that you would speak forth from your word tonight, the comfort that we need to hear in our hearts. We know that there are many within the fellowship that are, that are going through a hard time right now. Know someone who's going through a hard time or has just come out of a hard time. And Lord, more than ever, your word is needed. It speaks the life that we need. We invite it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we've spent several weeks in Psalm 37. We are going to finish it tonight. I've titled the message, Salvation is of the Lord. And sometimes that's a reminder that we need to have. And as we go through the study tonight, you'll, you'll begin to understand why. Because, you know, when things get difficult, we look to a lot of other things to help us out of it. We, we start to see ourselves only in our circumstances. We forget that there's a bigger picture. This psalm is a lengthy psalm to just kind of reiterate a few things. It's written in the form of um, not only an acrostic poem which means it, it takes the first letter uh, in sequential order of the alphabet in the Hebrew and, and begins each line with that letter. But it also is a string of many proverbs that have been put together. It has a distinct contrasting form that takes wickedness and righteousness and compares it and puts it together in a way that we can distinguish between the context is that in which it may seem like wickedness has, has taken the triumph over the righteous. And the author of this psalm is David, who writes not as a young man filled with harsh reality, uh, filled with dreams and lofty visions and, and that, you know, that uh, sparkly idealistic outlook that most young folks may have. But it's rather as an older man who's had to experience the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. This means the seeming success of the wicked has affected him, but through it all, he maintains the truth and the fulfillment of God's eternal promises to the righteous. So as we close Psalm 37 tonight, there's three images that are used to illustrate that salvation is of the Lord. So starting in verse 32, we're going to go all the way to verse 40 as we close it out. It says, the wicked one lies in wait for the righteous and intends to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in the power of the wicked one or allow him to be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed. It says, I've seen a wicked, violent person, well-rooted like a flourishing native tree. Then I passed by and noticed he was gone. 
I searched for him, but he could not be found. Watch the blameless and observe the upright for the person of peace will have a future. But the, but the transgressors will all be eliminated. The future of the wicked will be destroyed. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, their refuge in a time of distress. The Lord helps and delivers them and he will deliver them from the wicked and save them because they take refuge in him. And so we have three pictures that we're going to look at to, to get that principle, that truth, that much needed instruction that salvation is of the Lord into us. And the first scene is the court. As David wrote in 32 to 34, he says, the wicked one lies in wait for the righteous and intends to kill him. It says the Lord will not leave him in the power of the wicked one or allow him to be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed. You might be going, where in there is there a courtroom? Well, there is one word that talks about it being condemned when he is judged. But also, there is the phrase about the wicked one lying in wait for the righteous one and intending to kill him. And other translations may say that the wicked one watches intently or is keeping an eye on, waiting to bring a charge. The intention of that wicked one is not to injure. The intention is not to discredit. His intention is to kill, to destroy the righteous. That speaks of malicious intent because when you intend for something to happen ill towards another, that's happening with malice because you want it to happen. And so the wicked one is acting with malice. And why? It's for no other reason than the other person is righteous. The same intent from the first murder ever recorded in scripture continues to be what drives the wicked to murder. In Genesis chapter four, we come across the very first murder. It was between two brothers, Cain and Abel. It says she, Eve also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Verse four and five says, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And that word regard means that the Lord accepted Abel's offering while he rejected Cain's offering. And there's been many questions about why did the Lord accept this one and why did he reject that one? And there's been many things that have been made about that. But the main point of that isn't necessarily what they offered. It's what Cain did because Abel was found to be righteous and acceptable to the Lord. It says Cain was furious and he looked despondent. And the Lord even approached him and said, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? And he tells him, if you do right, won't you be accepted? He says, the righteous are accepted. The righteous do right. If you do right, won't you be accepted? He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain went away with a choice. How was he going to respond to this? What was he going to do with this? 
if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. If you don't do what is right, sin lies at your door and it seeks to overtake you. In verse eight, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, he said, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The intention and the desire from the wicked is to kill the righteous for none other than being righteous. The righteous are hated without cause by the wicked because the wicked despise the righteous for the very goodness that's in them that they themselves have rejected. The very goodness that they themselves have rejected and they hate them for it because it's a constant reminder of what they have rejected. In ancient Israel, the wicked achieved places of influence and power, especially in that of courts. So glad that that stayed in ancient Israel and it doesn't happen today. We don't have any wicked and unrighteous people in places of power in which they can inflict their influence upon others. In ancient Israel, the judicial system was far from perfect, far from efficient. In fact, it was easily manipulated by the higher upper class. Unfortunately, not much has changed with today's society. The same thing happens. In fact, this is the main complaint against the court. We have the best court system that man has ever created, which isn't saying a whole lot, but compared to the rest of the world, we have a pretty good system. The only problem is, is they found a way to make the system work only for those who can afford it. They've made a way to make the system work only for those who have the money. Not just the court systems either. There's many other systems that they've done the same thing with. If you don't have the money and you are in the poor class, you will be oppressed by it. So the, the wicked are lying in wait. They're waiting to spring a trap to catch the righteous. They watch the righteous and their every move waiting to move in. It's typical of the wicked. We've seen this before. If you, if you recall the story of the prophet Daniel in the land of Babylon, under the ruling of uh, King Darius, in Daniel chapter 6 is where we pick it up. It says, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them, three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. In verse 3, Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. You see, again, someone has set themselves apart, set themselves, distinguishing themselves, not because of anything they've done, but because they live with that desire to do what is right. In verse 4, the administrators and the satraps, therefore... Because Daniel has set himself above them in desiring to do what's right. It says they kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they couldn't find a charge. They couldn't find a charge of corruption because he was trustworthy. They couldn't find negligence or corruption. And none of that was found within him. So here's what they said. They said, we'll never find a charge against this Daniel. May that be said of us. That they search and they search and they search and they say, we can't find a charge against them. So here's what we're going to have to do. We have to find something against him concerning the law of his God. They have to set a trap 
concerning the law of God. We see in the courtroom so far, what we have is someone like a prosecuting attorney. That's what I see this wicked person lying in wait as. Prosecuting attorney, watching every move with the blink, I'm sorry, with the eye of a hawk to bring accusation, to pick apart, to nail the righteous one with something that will get him put to death. That by default makes the righteous one the defendant. David writes on though, that despite the wicked lying in wait, the promise is that the Lord will not leave him in the power of the wicked one. The Lord will not leave him in the hand of the wicked one. On top of that, neither will he allow him to be condemned when he's judged. The Lord will not fail to intervene on behalf of the righteous man. What a glorious promise. You see, now in the courtroom, the picture gets a little bit clearer. We have the prosecutor. We know who the defendant is. And now we get to see the defense attorney who also happens to be the judge. And I don't know if you know what that sets it up for, but it's an unfair courtroom for the wicked. Because the Lord is both defense and judge and the Lord is able to defend against the accusations and to prevent the righteous one from being declared guilty. And here's what we need to pick up from that, that the righteous are not at the mercy of the wicked, but they're in the powerful protective hand of the Lord God, who is the highest judge. Many times we feel helpless in our situation. We feel like there's no way out. And somehow we relegate that the wicked are somehow acting far superior than God. And we need to remember that God is the one who remains in ultimate control. He's the one that continues to hold it. And he's the one who will stand for our defense. We may not find a defense here. Maybe they'll slander us here. Maybe they'll find an accusation here. But there is a higher court. Everything goes to a higher court. Here, here in the U.S., if, you, if, if your case is seeming un, unher, uh, unfair, you can have it heard by a higher court. You can take it to the court of appeals. You can take it to the appellate court. If it goes high enough, it goes to the Supreme Court. Well, God's court is the Supreme Court of all courts. They all will answer to him. And so the wicked may accuse and pronounce judge, judgment, but the Lord is the ultimate judge. And the outcome of this trial for us has already been decided in favor of us as the accused. And it was decided before this trial ever began. The judge has predetermined to find the accused not guilty. And so then we move on in verse 34. It says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. And he will exalt you to inherit the land and you will watch when the wicked are destroyed. And we see this play out. Let's go back to our friend Daniel who was caught or who has these guys that are against him. And what happens in Daniel 6, 24? What happens is Daniel at this time is in the lion's den. You see, they, they plotted against him to find a law against his God. And they said, oh, for 30 days, you can't pray to anybody except King Darius. And then they made King Darius sign it. And they said, you have to sign it. And that way it can't be, it's irrevocable. 
So he did it. And then you know what they did? They sat outside Daniel's house because they knew who Daniel was. They knew how he was with God. And Daniel went up at the exact same time that he always does at the times of prayer. And he went up, he opened up his window and he prayed to the Lord God. Now it's not like he was shouting it out or anything, but he also wasn't hiding it. And they said, aha, we got him. And so they took him before the court and they said, didn't you make a law? And the king had to go, well, yes, I did. And doesn't it say this? And he had to go, yes, it does. And he said that they would be put to death. And so they said, we want Daniel to go to the lion's den. So they took him and they threw him in the lion's den. And as they took him to the lion's den and put him in there, they waited overnight. The king, it says that the king went out early the next morning. And we're going to get into that. But I want you to see what it says here in verse 24. It says, At the end of it all, the king gave the command and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den. They, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. This, my friends, is a promise here for the righteous man that God will exalt you and you will see the wicked destroyed. But there are conditions that must be met. You see, first we're to wait upon the Lord and then also we're to keep his way. Why? Because when we're in this time, when we're in that trial, when we're in those problems of people accusing us and coming after us and and threatening and, and having that ill intent for us, we tend to trust everything else but God and we tend to lose his way. Because we go, oh, I can't keep continuing like this. It's not safe for me. If I keep continuing like this, they're easily going to be, Daniel, they said, we're going to make a law against you praying. Daniel could have easily said, I shouldn't pray anymore. Or at least not out in the open. But it says that they're to wait upon the Lord. To wait is to wait and trust. Wait for God to act. To be silent before him in expectancy that he has it in control. And waiting upon the Lord requires obeying the Lord. When you wait upon the Lord, you continue obeying the Lord. You continue following him. You're like, I'm not going to change anything until you tell me to God. I'm going to keep the Lord's way. One of the Protestant church, uh, one of the Protestant leaders, John Calvin, commented, He says, it it is in vain for any to sit in judgment upon the first aspect of things. Hasty judgment is then the cause of our being deceived. But if a man were to extend his view, as it were, from a watchtower to a great distance, he will find that it has been said with truth that the end of the reprobate and the end of the righteous, respectively, are at length very different. And he says, let us learn to suspend our judgment if God should not immediately accomplish what he has spoken. This means, God, where are you? You said you would do this and it hasn't happened yet. If we should become impatient in our desires, let us moderate our minds by the reflection that the end is not yet come and that it behooves us to give God time to restore to order the confused state of things. 
Let us not become impatient for it to be put right, but let us instead have the mind of us that it is n- the end is not yet come. Why is that important? Because when the end is not yet here, the day of salvation is still here. The time for the wicked to turn from their ways and choose life that they might live is still here. Now, Daniel waited upon the Lord. We see that in chapter 6, verse 19, after they threw him into the, den, uh, into the lion's den. It says, at first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried down to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. He'd been worried all night. I doubt he slept. It said, Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has your God, whom you continually serve, been able to rescue you from the lion's? And Daniel spoke. He spoke with the king and he said, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me for I was found innocent before him. And also before you, your majesty, I've not done harm. And that testament right there, first and foremost, understand this. No one can harm you when the Lord has found you innocent before him. And number two, when we choose to live faithfully for God, it's a testimony to others. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was brought up from the den, he was found to be unharmed for he trusted in his God. It was recognized. He trusted in his God. Because Daniel kept the Lord's way. Remember when I said that they had had a document that had been signed that he couldn't pray. It says, Daniel went into his house, the windows in its upstairs room, open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. They didn't, the wicked did not change his ways of being with God and the wicked should not change our ways of being with God. You see a temptation while waiting for the Lord to act on our behalf is to waver. But in order to avoid wavering, we keep his way. We continue to do what he has called us to do. We continue to walk in the way that he's called us to walk. The wicked man's schemes and his deceits, they're going to be rewarded by destruction and they're going to be rewarded by death. Because there is coming a day where God will settle the score. And when he settles the score, the righteous man is going to see just how just God is. But in the meantime... And even today, if we look out, we we would say that this might be the perspective that we see. It looks like liars prosper. Now, wicked men may unjustly condemn the righteous. But as we look out and we, we see that in our heart, hurts within us as we see that, realize that there is a great day of reckoning that's coming. And then when that comes, truth is on the side of the godly. And all accounts will be settled according to God's will. And the promise is you shall see it. 
you will not only escape the destruction that they've planned for you, but you're going to live to see their ruination. And notice the different areas of focus here. See, this psalm is nothing but a contrast of the wicked and, and, and the righteous, but look at the two different areas of focus. The righteous wait upon and are focused on God. The wicked lie in wait, watching people with no concern for God. The second picture that David paints for us in this psalm is the flourishing tree. Verse 35, he says, I have seen a wicked, violent person, well-rooted like a flourishing native tree. Then I passed by and noticed he was gone. I searched for him, but he could not be found. David compares the wicked, violent person to a well-rooted, flourishing tree. And when we started the book of Psalms, and we started in Psalms 1, there was a description of the righteous person being a flourishing tree. You see Psalm 1-3, it says, He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. That is a flourishing tree. But here the ungodly are pictured as luxurious and flourishing native tree, meaning that, that they apparently have roots that have gone down real deep and the plant itself is well established. That's because at first look, at first brush with that power, the wicked seemingly hold that it can be fiercely intimidating. We might be tempted to act out of fear towards them instead of fear of the Lord because their position and their power is seemingly established. It seems to be unable to be questioned, unable to be checked. We've seen this throughout history. The Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, they were all fierce in the things that they've done. Where are they now? They're, they're taken out. But we've seen others in our own time. We've seen the, the Russians as, as they gathered up and, and came out under Stalin and Germany under Hitler. And we've seen these wicked regimes rise up. In more recent times, we, we saw the rise of the ISIS. And we thought that they were well established and they would never go anywhere. And everybody was terrorized by them. And yet they're not there. Why? Because that's the promise. That's what David himself saw. David saw Saul was under Saul. David saw his own son Absalom rise up. Their position, power, well-established, seeming to last forever. But it's the second look in that picture that David gives. He says, then I passed by and noticed he was gone. I searched for him, but he could not be found. Not only did the tree die, but there was no evidence. There was no trace. There was no remnant that there had been a tree at all. The wicked being compared to a flourishing tree and then spoken about as if they were completely gone right away, that's not naturally expected. There is something unnatural about that. Earlier in the psalm, the wicked were compared to pretty flowers that seemingly fade real quick. They, they bloom and they blossom and then they die out. 
flowers, quick ending life is expected, but to have a great flourishing tree just one day be gone like that, it's unexpected. That's because the only way a tree that is flourishing is suddenly gone without a trace is if it's purposefully cut down and removed. And so God will also do to the wicked. That tree was purposefully cut down and removed without a trace. The higher the wicked man exalts himself, the more terrible his fall. His end will be sudden and complete. And since the psalm is already like the Proverbs, I liken it to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 22. The wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous ripped out of it. Roots and all. And what we need to understand is that wickedness and evil will seemingly flourish for a time but that time will soon and quickly end. God's promised it. The last picture that we have is a righteous rescue. Look at verse 37. It says, watch the blameless and observe the upright. For the person of peace will have a future, but the transgressors will all be eliminated the future of the wicked will be destroyed. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord and their refuge in a time of distress. The Lord helps and delivers them. He will deliver them from the wicked and he will save them because they take refuge in him. So he says, watch the blameless and observe the upright because the person of peace has a future. The blameless are those who would be free from guilt. You're blameless if you can sleep comfortably at night because you have no guilt within you. If you were to stand before the judge, you have no fear because you are blameless. They can't bring anything against you. The upright, those are the people who live in accordance with a standard set before them. And when God is speaking about the upright, he's talking about those who match up to his godly standard. And he says, they will be a people of peace. Why? Because they have peace with God. Those who don't have peace with God have a torment within them all the way up until the day of the Lord, that terrible day. They always have that dread. They always have that fear because they know that day is coming. The Bible teaches that he's written eternity on our hearts. We know that there is life after death. That's what scares us. It's not death that scares us. It's life after death that scares us. Are we ready for it? Are we prepared to meet God? The upright and the blameless, they have peace. They have a future. As opposed to the wicked. The wicked which watch the righteous but they only watch them in order to overtake them. They only watch them in order to take advantage of them. They only watch them in order to destroy them. David is exhorting the one here to watch and observe and learn from the blameless and the upright so that you can strengthen your trust in God. The idea is to watch and observe 
It brings with it a connotation of mentoring. Take them on as your mentor. Watch the ways of the blameless. Watch the ways of the upright. They have a future because transgressors will all be eliminated. There, there won't be a single transgressor left. They will all be eliminated. And the future of the wicked is nothing but destruction. They have no promise. They have no hope. Sometimes we get stuck here in the physical as we're evaluating the way things are playing out. And, and we start to, maybe they're flourishing because they're on the right track. Or maybe I'm suffering and, and I'm going through this because I'm not doing things right. When the case may be that we are going through the tough times precisely because we're walking with God. And he is desiring to bring us through and to seek to make us more holy. See, the key is not to look at what, what do people look like? What possessions do they have? What, what positions, what, what uh, titles do they have? That'll tell you if you should look up to them and follow them. No, the key is to look and consider the ultimate end. The key is to have the long view in your mind. Far too often we have the short view. We want it now. We, we are a microwave generation, right? And even now we've outgrown the microwave. We need instant. That's why they created the instant pot because the microwave wasn't fast enough. We, we want it now. We, my kids have grown up now. They have no idea what a commercial really is. They don't know what a TV programming schedule is because they grew up with streaming TV, on-demand TV. If I remember correctly, I think I was like 2021 20, by the time they started coming out with the TiVo. Remember when you could pause live TV? That was the coolest thing ever. And you could skip through the commercial. You still had to kind of see them and fast forward, but you could skip through them. And then it it, it's continued to progress forward. And now it's video on demand, TV on demand, streaming on demand. Why? Because we've outgrown the microwave. We want it now. We have to take the long view in mind. Instant gratification will get us into trouble. We need to be able to hold on, to endure, to persevere, to continue. The righteous have a future. The wicked do not have much of a future. Proverbs 24, 19 says, don't be agitated by evildoers and don't envy the wicked. The evil have no future and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. When you look out and you see people in positions of power, you see them being able to get their way. You see them getting that special red carpet treatment. Maybe it's for medical procedures. Maybe it's for, you know, just being able to go out and dine out. This has always befuddled me. Why is it the people that can afford to pay for all the things are offered more things for free? Why is it that the, the, when the queens go to places and the, and the princes go to places and all the famous rock stars go to places, everything's given to them? But those of us who struggle to, to make a dollar, we have to pay for every bit of it. It's not fair, right? And we might, look at the, we might look at those people that are in those positions. We might be envious of them. But the Bible says don't envy them. 
Don't envy them. Because of their future. They have no future. And their lamp will be put out. The salvation of the righteous, however, is from the Lord. He is their refuge in a time of distress. You're distressed, you're having trouble, go to the Lord. He's your refuge. He's your safety. He's your security. The greatest thing that we have as the righteous is that connection with God. You know, the wicked, when they go through troubles, they have nothing. All that money that they have brings them zero security. It doesn't matter how rich you are. What happens when you get a diagnosis that's terminal? Can your money save you? No, in that time you need a relationship with God. They don't have one. They've rejected the very God who would bring them comfort. But he is our help. He is our refuge in a time of distress. We need to remember that. And the Hebrew words here, it's really awesome to look at it because it says that the salvation is of the Lord, that he's our refuge in a time of distress. And it continues on. It's both past tense and future tense, meaning he was this and he still is today because God hasn't changed. He hasn't gone on beyond that. He is still the God of our salvation. Question is, is where do you find your safety? Where are you looking for strength in those times of distress? And may I encourage you that you would look to the Lord and that your strength would come from God alone because salvation comes from the Lord and he is our refuge. And salvation in the Bible is talked about in many different ways. There is salvation for our soul, but there is also salvation for our way of living. There's salvation for our mindset. There, there's salvation that the Lord brings us out of those things to walk that path with him. You can be saved right now today in your mindset, in your thinking. You can be saved right now in your soul by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can be saved from those terrifying thoughts about everything being up in the air and, and just being all out of control and chaotic because the Lord would be your refuge. He would be your safety. We need to come to that understanding that the wicked's attempt to ruin us cannot outdo God's promises to keep us. Maybe, maybe you saw it with the picture of the tree. As I brought in Psalm 1 about the blessed man being a flourishing tree and the wicked person being a flourishing tree, maybe you were kind of like, how can they both be flourishing trees? But that's the conundrum of the New Testament, isn't it? The image of the, of the tree shows that the wicked can look and be indistinguishable from the righteous. It's the whole thing about the tares and the wheat. And as they grow up, they look the same. And it seems that their security is equally assured. Why? Because God has said, no, don't take up the tares yet. Let them both grow up together so that we can distinguish between the one or the other. That way no wheat is ever cut down. 
Think of that. God allows them to flourish because he doesn't want to risk any of the righteous being cut down. But they won't always flourish. We cannot judge by appearances. The size of their bank account doesn't make them righteous. The house that they live in doesn't make them righteous. The fact that maybe the court of law on on this earth, man's court of law says that they're right and you're wrong, doesn't, doesn't justify and cause them to be righteous. That comes from the word of God alone. That's how we're to judge. Where does it line up with God's word? St. Augustine says, At present, therefore, let the righteous bear with the sinner. Let the wheat bear with the tares. Let the grain bear with the chaff. For the time of separation will come. And so for a time, we will bear with. Because our hope is not in whether they get up over our hope is in the fact that the Lord will separate. And the promise in the new Testament from the apostle Peter himself is that the Lord knows how to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He can protect the righteous while condemning and destroying the unrighteous. He's done it. He's done it with the flood. He, he's done it through multiple judgments in which he's already carried out. He's, he's shown that he can do that in our struggle against the unrighteousness of our day, we cannot lose sight that our eternal salvation is a gift from God. Salvation will come from no other. We, we, we won't be able to save ourselves. We have to rely on God. If you can rely on God for your eternal salvation, you can rely on God to save you from every other thing that you'll face. And he'll save you not because of our goodness, because of his goodness. So when evil seems to triumph over good, we need to learn to be patient with God in his judgment of them as he was in his judgment towards us. Because it says that God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But he is long-suffering because he desires none to be perished, but that they would all come to a saving knowledge. Remember, for each and every one of us, we can say, but for the grace of God, there go I. We have to keep the long view in mind. Now this psalm, throughout the entire part of this psalm, there is only two categories of people. There's the wicked and there's the righteous. There's no other category of people. There is not the mostly righteous and there's not the somewhat wicked You're either wicked or you're righteous. And back at the beginning when I said in the courtroom that God has already predetermined that the righteous would be declared not guilty. How can he do that? How is it that God can be a good judge and yet defend sinners against accusations and condemnation? It's not because those do more righteous work and less evil works. It's not because it's earned in any way whatsoever. Here's how God can still be a good judge 
yet defends sinners and declare them righteous even though they're not. Because Jesus, God's son, took on flesh, was born as a baby, grew, lived as a man who lived a perfect life, fulfilling every fulfillment of the law of God, willingly took upon him the punishment for men as he went upon the cross and was murdered innocently. And he took on all our sins so that God could judge sin, but he judged it at Christ so that he could declare us not guilty of sin. That's why John writes in the New Testament, says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Understand that that word advocate is also used of a lawyer. In the courtroom at the eternal judgment, understand that in Christ Jesus, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it's not only for ours, it's for the sins of the whole world. All who would come to believe upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As we're going to close with a final song, I want to put out an invitation for any who are listening. Understand, there's only the two groups. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. You're, you're either righteous or you're wicked. The wicked will be destroyed. The righteous will be saved by God. And God has put it out there through Jesus at the cross. He said that, any who call upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. And Jesus himself promised that any who come to me, I will by no means cast away. The invitation is open. The, the promise is there. You see, he hasn't pulled up the tares from the wheat because it is still a time for salvation. He's still waiting. He's still long suffering. He's still enduring men's wicked acts that the most that could be saved will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so I'm going to invite you during this last song, if that's you, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, now is the time to do it. God is calling. If, if, if you feel that stirring in your heart, that is the spirit working within you. Don't quench the spirit. Allow him to have his work and come and surrender at the foot of the cross. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and forgive you of your sins, that you would be able to stand blameless and upright before God because the blood of Christ covers you. But I'm also going to make an appeal, and I'm going to invite those that know Christ as their Lord and Savior, but maybe you've been walking, and maybe the world has overtaken you. And maybe for a minute, you might have wavered. Maybe you've longer you've wavered. Maybe you've walked away. God is still inviting you back. There's still an opportunity to continue to come back. It's easy to be shaken by the things that happen to us. But God is calling you back and saying, take refuge in me. And discover that he is your rock. He is the unshakable one. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, Lord. And Father, as we consider the principles in this psalm, as we consider the principles of your word to us, as we hear the appeal of your spirit, 
Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that we would heed your invitation to come and give ourselves to you. Place our trust in you. Put our faith in you. That we would keep your way, Father. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.